Well, good morning, everybody. I'm going to open us with a word of prayer, and then I'll talk a little bit to remind you of some things on the schedule, and then we'll jump in and we'll finish the section of Joel that we're dealing with. But join me as we start the class in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you again for the blessings you've given us to be a part of the body of Christ here at Lakeside. Even as we listen to Pastor Steve's message this morning about the blessings of being a part of the church, we thank you, Lord, that those things are real for us here in our church in Clearwater. And I thank you, Lord, for the opportunities we have to gather. I pray for all those who are not feeling well this morning or for some other reason, perhaps they're out of town or visiting someone. Just pray, Lord, that you would continue to work in all of our hearts so that we become more like Jesus in 2022. And I thank you for the blessings you've given us and the blessings that bring us here this morning. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it is a happy new year to see you guys and very thankful. This morning I'm going to jump back in and finish this section of Joel. It's more verses than I normally cover, but I think it will be very manageable for us, and we'll get through this section. As I was thinking through, this is the, as as you know if you've been here, this is really the fourth message on a section of Joel chapter 2 that begins at verse 18 and runs through verse 27, but I was reminded in God's sovereignty of how timely it is, because what we're reading about is God's response to his people, specifically to his people when they repent, but it's just a reminder that even in the midst of the craziness around us, God fulfills his promises. Even if the world goes crazy, and it has, as believers, we know, despite the fact that 2021, in some respects, was a replay of 2020, God is still with us. And I was reminded of Hebrews chapter 13, at the second part of verse 5, I could have read for earlier, but it says, For he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. Verse 6, So that we confidently say, The Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid. What will man do to me? That really is a great motto for starting the year. Whatever comes our way, we have nothing to worry about. God is on his throne, we are his people, and we can cling to his promises on and on. And that is really what is involved in the section of Joel that we're covering. I'm going to, in a moment, I'm going to read that entire section, 18 to 27, just to put it in context and then we're going to go through it very quickly. But as you recall, as I say over and over, Joel was dealing with what was, in essence, the judgment of God on Judah for their disobedience. We're not told exactly why they were, in what way they were disobedient. But he was disciplining Judah and he disciplined them with the locust plague that destroyed everything, wiped out all their crops, wiped out all their food, wiped out their ability to worship. And he was threatening them with the even greater judgment of a foreign army that would finish the work started by the locusts and would completely wipe them out. But as we've read over and over, in the midst of all of that warning, they had already been destroyed economically, and they were threatened with being destroyed as a nation as a whole. In the midst of that, God said, yet even now, Joel chapter 2 verse 12, yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart. 
and with fasting, weeping, and mourning, and rend your heart and not your garments. Now return to the Lord your God. That's the essence of repentance. A brokenness, not because you got caught or because you feel bad, but brokenness because you offended a holy God. Now return to the Lord your God, for He is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness, and relenting of evil. And really, what we're talking about in the sections that we're going to be covering is what God does when that happens. In other words, when the people repent, what's the outcome? So I'm going to read this longer section, then remind you of my three-part outline, and then dive into all of it together. So if you have your Bibles open or your Bible apps open... I haven't done this since the first week I taught, but we're going to read Joel chapter 2, verse 18 to 27. Then, meaning after the repentance has occurred, after the national outpouring of grief, after all the nations come together and cried out for mercy, then the Lord will be zealous for his land and will have pity on his people. The Lord will answer and say to his people, Behold, I'm going to send you grain, new wine, and oil, and you will be satisfied and full with them, and I will never again make you a reproach among the nations. But I will remove the northern army far from you, and I will drive it into a parched and desolate land, and its vanguard into the eastern sea, and its rear guard into the western sea, and its stench will arise, and its foul smell will come up, for it has done great things. Do not fear, O land. Rejoice and be glad, for the Lord has done great things. Do not fear, beasts of the field, for the pastures of the wilderness have turned green, for the tree has borne its fruit. The fig tree and the vine have yielded them full. Verse 23, So rejoice, O sons of Zion, and be glad in the Lord your God, for he has given you the early rain for your vindication, and he has poured down for you the rain, the early and latter rain as before. The threshing floors will be full of grain and the vats will overflow with the new wine and oil. Then I will make up to you for the years that the swarming locusts have eaten. The creeping locusts, the stripping locusts, and the gnawing locusts, my great army which I sent among you. You will have plenty to eat and be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you. Then my people will never be put to shame. Thus you will know that I am in the midst of Israel and that I am the Lord your God and there is no other and my people will never be put to shame. As I originally outlined this and and again we've already gone through the first three verses and each point of the outline corresponded to a verse but I broke it down into three parts of God's response to the genuine repentance of its people and I said God's Compassion abounds. And I did that from verse 18. And God's blessings overflow from verse 19. And last week we covered verse 20 where I said God's caring love is magnified. And all of those things flowed from the text that God would respond and He would be zealous for that piece of real estate called Israel and He would care for His people and He would give them new wine and grain and oil, meaning everything that was destroyed by the locusts would come back. And He would take the invading army that He had threatened them with and He says, I'll destroy them. They are powerful. They are mighty. They've done great things in an earthly sense. I'll wipe them out. You will not be touched because I am your God. And as I mentioned at the time, while I pulled the outline points at verse 18 and 19 and 20, and I introduced it that way, and I think it's valid, verses 21 to 27 are really just an elaboration of all of that. 
Because what we're going to see today as we run through these verses is the descriptive fullness of the blessings that God is giving in response to the repentance. As we covered, as we've gone through the material, I believe the best understanding, and it is a little bit challenging, I read multiple times the difference between the ESV, which looks in a past tense, and the New American Standard, which looks in a future tense, and other translations go in different ways. But I think the best way to understand all of this is that for that generation that lived through the locust plagues of chapter 1, they did repent, and these things happened to them to a certain extent in their time. But as with much of the book of Joel, it's pointing forward to a future day. It's why it's called prophecy. It's pointing forward to a future day where this will be fulfilled in a permanent sense for the remnant of Israel that one day comes to faith in Christ. Not just the occasional Jewish person like Pastor Steve who comes to faith, but rather when the entire nation, as described in Romans 9, 10, and 11, the entire nation, a remnant during the millennial kingdom, will repent and turn to Christ. So while I'm going through it today, I'm primarily talking about it in the context of what was happening then and what I think was fulfilled with that generation of people, but I'm also going to be talking and pointing forward, as we've done in the past, to the fact that some of this will ultimately be fulfilled in the future. So I'm tempted, as always, to start going down side roads and to to dive deeper, but as I went through the material, and I've studied it for many weeks, I really am going to try and just go through this quickly, because I think a lot of the depth that I tried to pull out in prior weeks suffices to deal with the substance of what is here. So bear with me as I try and give an overview of this bigger section of verses 21 to 27 which is something I don't normally cover as much, but I think we can this morning. So, beginning of verse 21 is a reminder. He says, Do not fear, O land. Rejoice and be glad, for the Lord has done great things. Now, it's interesting language because he's talking to something that can't hear. He's talking to the land. But really, this is, again, it's prophetic, but it's poetic language And it ties back into things he said in chapter 1. If it's easy enough for you to do it, look back at chapter 1, verse 10. In describing the destructive power of the locust, the wave after wave of locusts, verse 10 says this, The field is ruined, the land mourns, for the grain is ruined, the new wine dries up, fresh oil fails. So he had personified the land, not meaning it literally, but he was talking about the comprehensive nature of the destruction. The New Testament says that the creation groans under the weight of sin. There's a sense in which all Joel is doing is painting the contrast between how great the devastation was, but how great the blessings of the Lord will be. Joy and happiness was gone because of the locusts, but in a personification, he says, don't fear, O land. Rejoice and be glad, for the Lord has done great things. There's a play here, because in the prior verse, the army that God was destroying, it said the army did great things, but those were in an earthly sense, in a pagan sense. He's contrasting it, saying this is truly great. 
The Lord has done great things. The restoration in response to repentance is truly a powerful act of the Lord. It's supernatural. So while in chapter 1 the grain was ruined, the new wine dried up and fresh oil fails, in verse 19 he's already said that's going to come back and it's going to come back in abundance. That's why there can be rejoicing and gladness. The Lord has done great things. Verse 22. He continues, and again, he's borrowing this personification type theme. He says, Do not fear, beasts of the field. For the pastures of the wilderness have turned green, for the tree has borne its fruit, the fig tree and the vine have yielded him full. Again, he's borrowing and drawing from the contrast he painted in what we call chapter 1. Again, looking at chapter 1, verse 18, he says, How the beasts groan. The herds of cattle wander aimlessly because there's no pasture for them. Even the flocks of sheep suffer. To you, O Lord, I cry, for fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness and the flame has burned up all the trees of the field. Even the beasts of the field pant for you, for the water brooks are dried up and fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness. Again, as he was painting the picture of the destruction, he was pointing out the very real fact that not only were people on the verge of destruction, the animals were hopeless. They had nothing Everything was gone. Those locusts ate every scrap of anything that would have been sustenance for those animals. But here Joel is again pointing out how this isn't just something of the people. It's the entire land. It's like a redo, a rebirth of everything. Do not fear, beasts of the field. These animals that couldn't find a blade of grass. He said the pastures are going to be green. It's all coming back. The fruit of the trees will be there. The animals will even be taken care of. He says, The fig tree and the vine have yielded in full. And as I've mentioned again in the course of teaching through this book, as you look through the Old Testament, quite often a measure of peace and prosperity and God's blessing for His people is tied up in the imagery of the fig tree and the vine. And that's what... Joel is borrowing, for example, in 1 Kings 4.25, talking about what was in essence, it was the last time the kingdom was unified under Solomon, but it says, 1 Kings 4.25, So Judah and Israel lived in safety, every man under his vine and his fig tree, from Dan even to Beersheba, all the days of Solomon. So again, we're seeing God's compassion being poured out on the land, on the people. His caring love as he takes the destruction, and I believe in a supernatural way, as I'll mention later, brings things back because the people turned to him. Their hearts were broken, and God responded. And he addresses the people specifically in verse 23. So rejoice, O sons of Zion, and be glad in the Lord your God, for He has given you the early rain for your vindication, and He has poured down for you the rain, the early and latter rain, as before. So again, it's a situation where this is borrowing the same 
imagery. He's still doing the same thing. He's making it very clear that things are being restored. What I realized just now was a verse reference that I had in my mind. I didn't put in my notes, so I'm looking it up on my phone. I'm not texting somebody else, don't worry. I'm not that talented. Chapter 1, verse 16. Has not food been cut off before our eyes? Gladness and joy from the house of our Lord. An aspect of the destruction was that joy, it was gone. There was nothing. And yet here he's saying, So rejoice, O sons of Zion, and be glad in the Lord your God. That which was taken away because of their sin, now because of their repentance is being restored. The imagery that follows of the early rain, that God's poured down the early and latter rains, it really is just an indication that the agricultural needs of rain were going to be met at the right time. I'm not a farmer. I've never been a farmer. But if you read enough, you understand that rain at the wrong time can wipe somebody out. The absence of rain at the wrong time creates droughts and breaks people. What Joel is basically saying is, look, once again, you're going to be in God's favor because you've repented. And at that time, the rain will fall when it's supposed to fall. God's in charge of the weather. He's given you everything you need. He'll restore so that the blessings will return. Chapter 1 really was describing after the locust plague, drought type conditions, that's going to be gone. God is providing what will be needed for the abundant harvest that will be necessary to provide the grain and the new wine and the oil that he's promised already. A picture of mourning and sadness and despair and terror is giving way to a celebration because God is blessing everyone. Verse 24, again, is a reiteration of the fact that this is not just a little bit. God will restore in abundance. Verse 24, the threshing floors will be full of grain and the vats will overflow with the new wine and oil. Everything that was gone will return. The threshing floors is where the grain is being prepared to be used. There won't be room. Wine and oil, it's not just that you'll have enough. It's overflowing. It's going to go over. They're just descriptive expressions of the abundance that God has said, I'm going to provide to you because you repented. It's another way of saying that God is really going to provide a prosperity that's limitless for his people who in brokenness turn to him. And in the context of the people that were living at that time, I believe verse 25 makes it clear that all of these things were going to be supernaturally done. Verse 25, Then I will make up to you for the years that the swarming locust has eaten. The creeping locust, the stripping locust, and the gnawing locust, my great army which I sent among you. If we think about it, in a natural sense, if we can remember back that far, when the locusts came through, they didn't just eat the exterior, they ate through the bark such that everything would die. Meaning, you couldn't just wait another year and re-harvest, meaning you had to dig up everything, you'd have to replant everything. 
And I think in context, it ties into that what Joel is saying because on its own, it would take years and years and years to restore the damage. It just would. You can't plant a fruit tree and harvest the same way the first year you plant it as you do it later years. If you've ever planted a fruit tree, you understand that. You, you might get excited that one or two of something pops up that first year. Hey, I, I'm a farmer. I grew something. But it'll be years before it actually produces like it was intended to produce. I think when God says, then I will make up to you for the years that the swarming locust has eaten, I believe he's saying in, in a sense, I'm going to fast forward the process. I'm going to restore your fortunes, but it's not going to take the time that it would normally take. How would he do that? I don't know. God is God. But God's saying the years that you would have lost because of that, because of your repentance, I'm going to give them back to you. Everything they destroyed, I'm taking care of it. There's a sense where there's even some legal language involved that some people made more of than I would, but in essence, God's saying, look, I will come in, all accounts are settled, it's mine. What you lost, I give back. I took it from you. I freely give it to you. The first part of verse 26 continues that, explains exactly what he's saying. You will have plenty to eat and be satisfied. God threatened them with devastation and hunger and starvation. If you read accounts in the Old Testament, countless times when cities were sieged, the people starved. And what's described in chapter 2 was what would become a siege of Jerusalem that God is saying, I'm taking it away, that isn't going to happen to you, this generation. And while on the one hand it looked like you were going to despair to even have something to eat, now he's going to say, you're not even going to be scraping by. You're going to eat. You're going to be satisfied. And praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you. It all goes hand in hand. Even though we've never been told the exact nature of the sin of Judah, the southern kingdom that caused all of the calamities of chapter 1 and threatened the calamities of the beginning of chapter 2, it seems at least an aspect of the issue, and it's consistent with Israel's history, was that God had blessed them materially. They were living in a land of abundance, and yet they didn't give credit or even acknowledge the God who was blessing them. That's the paradox of God's people. The entirety of the Old Testament is a picture of God carefully walking alongside His people even as they ignored Him and rejected Him and at every turn ran after other gods. But what He's saying is there'll be no mistake about where this is coming from. You've repented, I pour out my blessings, and you will praise the name of the Lord, your God. Not just any God, you're praising the one true God, the covenant, the covenant God of Israel, 
who has dealt wondrously with you. Again, that's part of the reason why I think some of this, we have to understand that God is intervening supernaturally. This isn't just, well, everything will return to itself. God took destruction and devastation and his people on the precipice of disaster and he's nursing them back to the health. He's giving them more than they could ever want. Not because they suddenly earned it, but because they repented and returned to him. The people knew, the people, according to what Joel is saying here, it would seem that when the people are eating and they're being satisfied, they're going to know this came from God. God opened the floodgates of heaven and is raining down his blessings, and this time they won't miss it. This time they won't pat themselves on the back and and say, well, I did a great thing and I've got agricultural prowess and I'm really skilled. They won't have any choice but to acknowledge the hand of God and they'll praise His name as His people. And then when we get to verse 26, the last part of verse 26, we really come back to a thought that we talked about at length in verse 19. He says in verse 26, Then my people will never be put to shame. Again, I talked about this in verse 19 where it talks about them being no longer being a reproach among the nations. And this is where we, again, although I talked about it in more detail, we just have to remind ourselves that that yes, this was fulfilled in the day of Joel. I believe for that generation, they lived out their lives and they died living without having been put to shame. But we also know from history that the nation was put to shame after that over and over and over again because while this generation may have repented, subsequent generations continued to defy the Lord. That rebellion continues until this day. But one day there's coming a time, and again, from our understanding of the book of Revelation and the other promises of Scripture, we believe this will occur in the millennial kingdom, It'll start in the tribulation when all Israel will be saved. That portion of Israel that's left, that isn't dead. And it will continue into the millennial kingdom when Jesus is ruling on the earth. Verse 27, Thus you will know that I am in the midst of Israel and that I am the Lord your God and there is no other. And then he reiterates, and my people will never be put to shame. God is emphasizing in Joel to his covenant people who originally received the letter that he planned to fulfill his covenant. They would know that he was their God. They would know that there is no other by seeing all the wondrous blessings that he was providing for their simple repentance. And he's letting them know, you could almost picture it, God as God standing in the midst of them saying, nobody will ever touch you. Nobody will ever again look down on you or shame you or conquer you or destroy you because one day, when that day comes, I'll be in your midst, I'll be your protector My covenant with you will be fully fulfilled for all times and no one will ever again challenge you. 
which is another way of saying, by that time every knee will have bowed and every tongue will have confessed that Jesus Christ is Lord and no one will challenge God successfully. He's reiterating, I am the only God, I'm the only God you have, I'm the only God you need, I'm the only God that is. There's echoes here of the provisions of Exodus 20. I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Verse 3, you shall have no other gods before me. Deuteronomy 4, 5. To you it was shown that you might know that the Lord, He is God. There is no other besides Him. And in all of this, God reiterates, my people will never be put to shame. One day, that will happen on the earth. But we know we're not there yet. Even this week, we see continuing acts of hatred towards Israel. More attacks by Hamas. From a geopolitical sense, there's a little strip of land on a map and yet half the world hates that little strip of land and the people that live there and even though those people don't currently most of them worship the Lord they're still his people and one day his promises will come to pass it happened in the generation of Joel's day and it will happen in the future so in all of this in the big picture we see what happened in God's response to repentance. And we would never allegorize the Old Testament. We would never say, well, all of this will make it and twist it and fit it. But God still responds with that type of generosity to the repentance of sinners. Because we all experience it. The wages of sin is death and we're not dead. One day we'll die but the point is, we could be sentenced to eternal death for our sin and God responds to the repentance of His chosen people. As bad as things may be at any given time in our country, we can never forget the privileges that we have in Jesus Christ. Our goal for everybody we know, for everyone in our country, should be that all of them would repent and believe the gospel. I consistently say for different reasons that America is not God's chosen people, Israel is God's chosen people, but, and I also say that America as a whole can't do things, but if our fellow citizens and our leaders and our politicians came to faith, it would transform our society and our culture and our world. In the past, at least the overt hostility toward Christianity that was absent allowed America to be a force for good in the world. Funding missionaries, spreading the gospel. If the people of our country, including our presidents and our leaders in Congress and our governors and our mayors and our state houses, and our local county commissions and city commissions, if those people came to faith in Christ and repented and returned to the Lord, it would transform our culture. Not because they passed better laws, but because they worshiped the one true God who can unload His blessings on people that repent. 
So let me encourage you this year. Even now, begin to ask the Lord for opportunities to pray for and witness to your fellow citizens who you know are not saved. Take it upon yourself if you want to be, if you want to temper your frustration, which I have to do, find the politician that you most despise and pray for them daily. Pray that they'll come to faith in Christ, not that God would strike them dead. I've got to be clear here. I'm not suggesting an imprecatory psalm fall on them. I'm suggesting that you pray diligently. At the very least, it'll give you a heart of compassion for people that are exasperating. But that's what we need is for our fellow citizens to return to the Lord, to repent and believe the gospel. That's what will transform our culture. That's what will transform our society. And if that happened, then the blessings of the Lord for repentance could be ours as well. Please join me as I close this teaching time in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, once again, we've completed a a large section of Joel. And Lord, I know my own struggles to fully understand and comprehend it. But Lord, it's not hard for us to understand the blessings of repentance because we've experienced it. Lord, if by chance there's somebody in this hearing my voice, either now or in the future by listening to it online, and they don't know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, I pray that you'd open their eyes and they'd see themselves as they truly are before a holy God in danger of destruction. But Lord, I pray that they would repent and believe. And I pray, Lord, that for every other citizen of America, for our president and vice president, and for all of our Supreme Court justices and all the members of the House of Representatives and of the Senate and every governor and every member of a state house and every mayor and every county and city commissioner, every bureaucrat. Lord, I pray that you'd work a miracle in America by bringing repentance to the hearts of individuals which would transform our land. Help us be diligent, Lord, to pray for this, to share with others, to pray for the lost. And Lord, if heart by heart you bring about repentance, pray that in the midst of it all we would rejoice and give you praise because you're the one who is worthy. We ask all this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.